Uh, it is a joy to be with you this morning and to uh, take a moment to pause from uh, whether you be in school or work or wherever you may find yourself this morning and to be able to gather together, to uh, worship together, to open God's word together. And it is a joy and an honor uh, to be able to be here with you uh, to do just that here this morning. On behalf of Wedgwood Baptist Church, I want to say thank you uh, and know that Southwestern is in our prayers all the time. Uh, Wedgwood and Southwestern have intertwined uh, over the years many, many times, and uh, it is a joy and it is a privilege to, uh, to be here with you this morning. So before we open up God's word together, let me take a moment just to pray uh, and to ask God to help us to have ears to hear, open hearts and minds to receive his word here this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the privilege that we have to gather here this morning um, to sing, to pray, uh, to hear your word spoken to us. And God, now to open your word together, to allow it to sink deep into our hearts and lives. And God, I pray that in this moment, God, that this would not just be another sermon that we've heard, but God, this would be an encounter with your living and active and powerful word. Father, I pray for a blessing on this time. God, that you would give me wisdom in what to say, what not to say, how to say it. Father, I pray that you would help this truth of your word to sink deep into our hearts and lives, to transform us, God, that we may not be just hearers of the word, but doers of your word. For it's in your name we pray, amen. If you have a Bible, I would encourage you to open it up uh, to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We're going to look at a passage that probably many of you are familiar with. This is a passage that I have uh, spent uh, many hours in reading through, studying, uh, reflecting on as well. And the subject I want to kind of talk about is just the need for weakness, especially as it applies to, to leadership. I'm currently getting a degree in leadership, and that really doesn't mean much, uh, I've learned. But at the same time, I have, uh, as I've been studying leadership and reading books on leadership, I've found that there's all kinds of different theories about what it talks about. But what we see here in, in the Apostle Paul's writing in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 is an idea that doesn't find itself much when you talk about leadership because Paul is going to say that we don't need strong know-it-all leaders. I think he's going to make the case for the exact opposite, that we need leaders that are weak. And as you, uh, many of you, I'm sure, over the years have probably filled out either assessment or some kind of a job interview application, or maybe you filled out a reference letter uh, for somebody else. I've done that many times over the years, and without fail, there's always a section that talks about the strengths and the weaknesses of the leader, right, or the individual. And the strengths, we all know what to put there. They're a good communicator, they're uh, empathetic, they're a great team player, they're a visionary, they're a great strategist, they're hardworking. But then when we come to the weaknesses, what do we put? Sometimes just not available. Uh, we'll just leave that blank because we feel like if we put a weakness there, we're actually attacking the character or the, the ability of the person. Or we've learned to become more nuanced in our weaknesses. Maybe it's things like cares too much uh, is a weakness or uh, doesn't know how to say no or just too much of a hardworking individual. And so we even try to make our weaknesses our strengths. But what if we were to flip that? What if we were to take more time to accentuate our weaknesses and minimize our strengths 
Uh, that would be a really pretty risky endeavor. I wouldn't say that if you're applying for your first church or ministry position that you do that. But that's what I think we find the Apostle Paul saying here. And I think it's interesting, though, that in our culture, we like to highlight our strengths and minimize our weaknesses. A gentleman by the name of Ronald Heifetz talks about this in his book, Leadership Without Easy Answers. He says that leaders are often uh, put in a position where they are forced, they feel like they have to know it all. They have to have all the answers to every problem, every situation, every dilemma. Let me just tell you, as a pastor who has shepherded a congregation through 2020, 2021, and now into 2022, I don't know all the answers. I'm not an epidemiologist. I'm not a politician. I'm not a race expert. I'm not a geopolitical expert. Uh, and these are all the issues that have been coming out that even pastors have been forced to speak into. We don't know all the answers. In fact, I think the opposite needs to be happening more, that as leaders, we probably need to be accentuating what we don't know and accentuating our weaknesses in order to be more effective leaders. Dan Allender, in his book, Leading with a Limp, talks just about that. He says that it's important for leaders to highlight and show that they're broken, that they're weak, that they're frail, that they're just as much in need of a Savior as the people that they're leading. And so that's what we're going to look at here this morning. So again, if you have a copy of God's Word, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, we're going to start, and we're just going to read through the first half of the chapter here. We're going to look first at verses 1 through 6, so read along with me. Paul says, if I must go on boasting, or I must go on boasting, there, there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body, out of the body, I do not know, God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which he, men, men may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. Though if I should boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it, so that when no one may think more of me than he sees in me, or hears from me. So Paul here is addressing this group of people there in Corinth that are uh, kind of his antagonists. They are uh, speaking against him, and they're going on and talking about their visions, their revelations, their knowledge. And Paul says, in effect, that I could, in, in essence, uh, go with them and fight with them and, and do the same types of things, bragging about what I've seen and heard and what I, I know, but I don't want to do that. But in essence, he feels kind of forced into that. And so he speaks of some of his own visions and his own experiences in which he was caught up into the third heaven. And he talks a little bit and alludes to some of the things that he as an apostle has experienced as well. But then he comes to the end of all of that and says, look, to be honest, though, I'm not going to brag about that. I'm not going to talk about that. I could and I would not be lying. But Paul alludes to what he's going to come back to here in just a few more verses that instead, as it says there at the end of verse 5, I would rather boast in my weaknesses. That's going to be the key theme of what he's going to talk about here over the next few verses. So then beginning in verse 7, we get into really the heart of the passage that leads us to this conclusion of boasting in weaknesses. There in verse 7 of chapter 12, he says, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of these revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, buffet me, torment me, depending upon your translation, to keep me from becoming conceited. 
So here Paul is alluding to the realization that these kind of experiences, these kinds of visions, these types of revelations would puff up any person because of the magnitude, because of their greatness. And so he said, in order for me to not become puffed up, in order to keep me from becoming prideful and conceited, he references this idea of a thorn in the flesh, this uh, unknown messenger of Satan. Dr. Doctor, he was asking me, so are you going to uh, illuminate us on all that that means? And my response was a very simple no. I've learned in pastoral ministry the three words that can save you are I don't know. And that's just fine because scholars are, are all across the map on it. Uh, you can look up any kind of commentary and there's all types of ideas. Maybe it was migraine headaches or epilepsy or vision issues. So there's the physical kind of camp. Other scholars want to talk about the possibility that this thorn in the flesh, this messenger of Satan, is opposition. As you can imagine what he's experiencing there in Corinth. Uh, as you can imagine what, if you just read through Paul's accounts there in Acts, uh, the repeated persecution, suffering uh, from his own uh, Jews and family members, and obviously from Rome as a whole as well. That's kind of the way I lean, just given the context of Paul here in this letter and throughout most of his writings. Most of his issues tend to be with people. And so you can imagine how if you're a church planter, if you're an apostle that has been commissioned by God to take the good news uh, throughout the Roman Empire, it's a pretty humbling fact when every one of your churches is having a problem. Even in Philippi, you got Yodia and Syntyche that are at odds. Corinth is a total mess, right? Uh, Titus is dealing with all kinds of things. Uh, in Crete, you've got the Galatian churches that have pretty much abandoned the gospel. So over and over and over again, Paul is having opposition and hardship and difficulties uh, that make his ministry and his apostolic work pretty difficult and would be pretty humbling as a pastor, it's hard to be prideful when your church has shrunk by 30 to 50% over the last three years. So I think that may be what Paul is dealing with here. And so what does Paul do about that? Well, verse 8 is the answer. He says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that, I should, that this messenger, that this thorn in the flesh should leave me. And here I think it's pretty interesting that that's exactly where Paul goes to first. He doesn't strategize. He doesn't try to work it out himself. His initial gut response when adversity comes into his life is to pray. And not just to pray once, but to pray repeatedly. The idea here is that Paul enters into an ongoing conversation with the Lord, uh, bringing his requests, bringing his needs, bringing his issues before him. It's not a one and off type of prayer. It's a heart of prayer. It's a mindset of prayer. It's a mentality that understands that if any real good work is going to be done, it's going to be through the power of God working in him and through him. And so he prays and he prays and he prays. And maybe day one goes by and there's no answer. Day two goes by. There's no answer. Day three goes by. No answer. But just like the persistent widow that Jesus alludes to in the Gospels, he keeps praying. And then finally, we get to the answer in verse 9. He says, but he said to me, the Lord, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Let me summarize that for you. Here's Paul's answer from the Lord. No, I'm not going to answer that request. I'm not going to remove the thorn. I'm not going to deliver you from this messenger. And it's not because God doesn't love Paul. He'll talk about that in Galatians. Christ loved me and gave himself up for me. 
It's not because God is not powerful or sovereign. We see that throughout the whole of Scripture. It's not that because Paul didn't, or God didn't hear the prayer because he's answering it here. No, God is giving Paul an answer that maybe at first we wouldn't like, but he's saying that, no, the reason I'm going to give you this answer is because I love you, because I'm sovereign, and because I'm in control, and because I've heard your prayers, this is your answer. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. You see, Paul here is learning, and there's an illusion that he's already starting to figure this out, that, that God is more concerned about Paul's character and faith and relationship with him than he is his comfort. He's more concerned about his heart and his soul than he is his earthly success. That's what matters most to the Lord. And he's sovereign because he can take the efforts of the messenger of Satan and turn it for God's glory and for Paul's good. The verses that precede the verses that we just read out of Romans 8 say that beautifully. We all know them. That God is able to work all things, messengers of Satan, thorns in the flesh, for our good and implied for his glory. And so here, Paul is seeing that God is good, that God is sovereign, that God does love him, and that he is going to take this difficult situation and turn it for his good and use it as something to develop and deepen his character, his love, his trust, his faith in the Lord in that situation. So what is Paul's response? This, this should make you kind of pause don't let your familiarity with this make you pass by it. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So here's Paul's application of this realization with the Lord, that he's asked the Lord to remove something. God says, no, I'm not going to because I have a greater purpose than even you're able to understand right now, and I'm forming you and deepening you in your relationship with me, and I'm gonna develop and deepen even your character to a greater extent, and so I'm doing something in all of this. And the thing I want you to learn from this is that my power is demonstrated, is, is, is magnified in your weakness. And so Paul's goal there is to say, well, then I want God to be glorified. I don't want people to, to know me or to remember me. I want them to know Christ. I want them to see Jesus high and lifted up. And so whatever it's going to take for us to accomplish that goal, I'm for it. And so therefore, I'm willing to endure hardships and weaknesses and insults and COVID and racial tensions and economic downturns and loss of attendance and loss of giving. I'm willing to have failures in church planting efforts. I'm willing to uh, deal with the Galatian churches over and over and over again. I'm writing, willing to write more and more to the Corinthian churches to deal with their tensions and their issues. Whatever it takes to magnify Jesus Christ, I'm for that. Because that's what Paul's chief concern was, is for Jesus Christ to be lifted high and to be glorified and to be magnified. And so he realizes then when I'm weak as an apostle, even when compared to all these super apostles that the Corinthians are comparing me to, in those situations when I am weak, I'm really gonna be strong because I'm not relying upon my own strength I'm relying upon the strength that God is working in me and through me. 
It's not to say that Paul is then just going to sit on the couch and just kind of passively allow the Holy Spirit to work and to move and to do the work. No, we see that in 1 Corinthians. He says there in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that I labored harder than any of these other apostles, yet it really wasn't me. It was God's grace working in me, through me, with me, for me. It was the grace of God that was doing it all. And so here Paul continues to understand and to apply that here in 2 Corinthians as well. So it's a quick little summary. Much more has been written about it. Much more, many more sermons have been preached on this. But I want to just spend our few minutes together saying, okay, so what does that look like practically for you and I? What does that look like for some of you that are aspiring to be pastors or student ministers or missionaries or worship leaders? What does that look like for some of you that are hoping to be salt and light in the context and the communities that you find yourself in? I've said that this is, in essence, we need weak leaders, but I think this obviously applies to any follower of Jesus. We need weak Christians that are going to emulate what Paul here is saying. So how do we do that? I think it starts foundationally, and I know I'm here at a seminary uh, preaching to a congregation in which, or a, a symbol group of people in which I hope all of you are followers of Jesus. You got in here, right? But just as a good way of reminder, this passage reminds us that our initial form of boasting is off the table. You see, we can't, we can't pat ourselves on the back for coming to faith in Jesus Christ, we can't uh, give ourselves props for being uh, just smarter than a non-Christian or luckier than them. No, we, we recognize, we understand what Paul writes about in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, we are born into this world spiritually dead, disconnected from God, enslaved to the passions of our flesh, the prince of the power of the air. We are children of wrath, he says there in verse 3. That's not a good situation to be in. There's no room for boasting. But then Ephesians 2, 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. It is by grace you have been saved. And why? He goes on to say, not as a result of work, so that nobody can boast. And then he goes on to give our purpose that we are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has already prepared beforehand for us to walk in. So there's no boasting as a Christian. There's no, there's no ability for us to boast in our faith in the sense of we are smarter, we've got it all figured out, or we've got all of our ducks, spiritual ducks in a row. We, we have come without the opportunity to boast. We have been saved by grace. We have been brought into God's kingdom by his mercy, his grace, his love. So there's no reason for us to boast about it. But here's the problem that I see in my life and in the lives of everybody else. I'm really good at seeing it in everybody else's life. I don't know if you're like that. I can recognize the speck in somebody else's eye before I see the log in my own. But my guess is that we all struggle with this, understanding that, yeah, there's no boasting in our relationship, entering into a relationship with Jesus, that there's no boasting uh, about our salvation. But we then somewhere along the way begin to boast about what happens after that of our sanctification. We begin to pat ourselves on the back for our accolades, for our followers, for our publications, for our size of our churches, for our leadership ability, and for our successes in this life. And here Paul says, no, I actually want you to not boast in those things. I want you to take a different approach. And so what I want to do is very quickly, 
You may not think I'm going to be able to do this. I don't know if I'll be able to do this, but we'll find out together, okay? Uh, you'll still get to go to class and lunch. But I want to try to cover just 10 things real quick, uh, 10 kind of characteristics of what it means to be a weak leader, what it looks like to boast in weakness. And I hope that these will be practical enough for you to kind of sink your teeth into and to think about and to ruminate on as you go from here. The first thing is, the first characteristic, I think, of weak leaders, weak Christians, people that are boasting in the cross or boasting in the Lord, is their idea of they understand their need for Jesus Christ, and they are continually seeking to be connected to him. First Corinthians chapter 4, Paul asked rhetorically to the Corinthians, he's like, what do you have that you didn't receive? In other words, every good thing in your life, James alludes to this as well, is from the Lord. You, there's nothing good in you. You haven't received anything that is worth you boasting about. And Jesus picks up on this, or Paul picks up on what Jesus says in John chapter 15. Remember those verses. There in verse 5, he says, apart from me, how much can you do? Nothing. We are totally unable to bear any fruit in and of ourselves on our own. The weak Christian, the weak leader, the weak follower of Jesus understands that perfectly. And as a result, they look to live out what Jesus says there in the first half of verse five, where he says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. If you will abide in me, if you will remain in me, if you will stay connected to me, you will bear much fruit. And so the weak Christian, the weak leader understands that they're weak, that there's nothing good in and of themselves. And so all of their fruitfulness, all of their strength, all of their success in this life has got to be tied to their relationship with Jesus Christ. Recently, I came across a job description. Don't worry to our Wedgwood folks, I'm not looking. Uh, but every now and then I, I come across these different job descriptions. And this one really stuck out to me. You know why? Because normally at the beginning of a job description, when they're listing out what they, this church wants a pastor to do, it's going to be things like preach, lead the staff, cast the vision, all those kind of fancy words that we like to throw around in church circles. This one said, your primary job as a pastor is to abide in Jesus. I will say, I was kind of tempted to fill that one out, right? I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But the idea there is that this church understood that the, the, the responsibility of the chief shepherd, not the chief shepherd, but the under shepherd of their congregation, the lead pastor, senior pastor, whatever you want to call him, is to cultivate a deep and lasting and meaningful and genuine and authentic relationship with Jesus Christ. Because all of their ability to shepherd the rest of that congregation was going to be tied to that. We have many, many pastors and church ministers that are trying to shepherd apart from a connectedness to the vine. And that's part of the problem in the Western church. And so, let us be weak and realize that I don't have it all figured out. I don't have all the answers. I don't have the strength. I don't have the energy. I don't have the ability to do what God is calling me to do apart from the grace and the power the presence of Jesus Christ working in me and through me as I abide in him. Connected to that, and before I move on to that, I will say this. Some of you are saying, but wait, wait, wait a second. All throughout scripture, there is this idea of being strong, courageous. You see that in Joshua. But always remember the context in which all those kind of passages come in. 
Uh, and Isaiah 40 and 41, yes, we're called to be strong, but it's, it's God that's giving us the strength. One of my favorite passages in, in the book of Colossians is Paul says, I, I toil with all of his energy that he's powerfully working within me. So yes, we're called to be strong. We're called to fight. We're called to resist. We're called to stand firm, but it's not in our own ability. It's in our connectedness to Jesus Christ. Abiding in his word, reading it, studying it, memorizing it, allowing it to soak deep into your life. Week after week after week, I say this from the pulpit at Wedgwood, and every now and then I feel like there's some that may go, okay, Dale, we get it. No, you don't. Because week after week after week, I have people say, yeah, I had not been in the word in a couple weeks. Imagine if I said I haven't eaten in a couple of weeks. This word is more important than food. So abide in it, memorize it, learn it. You're never too busy. And pastor, you are never, ever, ever too busy to be in the word. If you're too busy, you're too busy. Stop something, because you're not the savior of your congregation. The next thing is that weak people wait. Weak leaders wait. Weak Christians wait. Uh, Pastor J.D. Greer I love his statement that a lot of times we view prayer as we are praying uh, for something. We're praying for a strategy or an initiative as a church. But he goes on to say that I believe that prayer is the strategy. That a lot of times we are so focused on using prayer to baptize our own efforts instead of viewing prayer as the strategy to see whatever we want to see happen in our midst. We so many times can look at prayer as just an add-on to our already uh, set-in-motion plans and purposes. But here, throughout Scripture, we see this continual call, one, to pray, and then to wait. Those that wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. And God loves, Isaiah 64, 4, God loves to work for those who wait on Him. One of the hardest things to do as a leader as an individual, as a follower of Jesus, is to sit and wait and to do nothing. But understand, you're not really doing nothing. You're just getting out of the way so that the sovereign king of the universe can work and fight for you and work for you. And so we have to wait sometimes for fruitfulness to occur. Paul says there in Galatians 6, don't grow weary in doing good. Be patient. James alludes to that as well in James chapter 5. Be patient in suffering. Sometimes we have to be patient with ourselves. Paul reminds the Philippian believers that I'm confident that he who began a good work in you will complete it, will perfect it till the day of Christ Jesus, that God is working in our waiting. He's always at work behind the scenes. We sometimes just need to be patient and wait for that. And sometimes we need to be wait for God's justice. We need to be patient and wait for God's justice to come forth. But in all those things, we're waiting because we're weak and we understand that we really can't do this apart from God's intervention and working in our lives. So we wait on God to work for us. And then that frees us up for the third thing, that if we're allowing God to work on our behalf, if we're allowing God to, uh, as we're waiting to serve us, I dare say, as, as Jesus would say in Mark chapter 10, that we are then freed up to serve other people. Because weak leaders, weak People, weak Christians, are a people in a mindset, have a mindset of people aren't above me and they're not there to serve me. I'm here to serve them. 
As Paul would say in Philippians chapter two, to count others is more important than yourselves, to look to the needs and interests of others above your own, to realize, as Gene Wilkes would say in his book, Jesus on Leadership, that we have to humble our heart, that we have to look for opportunities and ways to serve and to encourage and to uplift those around us. So we are called to serve others as weak Christians, as weak leaders. And then weak people, I think, number four, know their weaknesses. Let me just uh, give you a little newsflash. If you come on staff to a church, to a congregation, uh, in any kind of capacity, staff member of worship leader, student minister, you're gonna find that everybody has a job description for you. And here's the kicker. They align on about 60%, give or take. In other words, one guy's job description for you is uh, this list of qualifications, and then another person is this list of qualifications, and then everybody in your church has a list of what they think you need to be doing, right? And here's the problem with it. If you add all of those up, only Jesus Christ could meet those qualifications. So as a weak individual, as a weak Christian, as a weak leader, you need to understand something that you are weak and you need to know your weaknesses. It's amazing, we tend to place the pastor or leader into a camp in which we assume they have all the gifts, that everything that Paul lists out for us in 1 Corinthians and Ephesians and Romans, that that pastor has all of those gifts wrapped up and they are in the embodiment of uh, the perfect leader. And we all know very well that that's just not the case. None of us have it all. Uh, trust me, my staff can give you all of my weaknesses. Uh, Debbie, my administrative assistant, can tell you all the weaknesses, all the struggles that I have as a leader, as an individual. But here's the thing, I know them better than they do. And that's my job as an individual, is to know my weaknesses, to know the areas that I struggle, to know the areas that I don't measure up, and then to look to surround myself with other people that are gifted in ways that I'm not. And so weak leaders don't try to do it all. They understand they're not the savior and they try to surround themselves with other people that can buttress their weaknesses as a whole. And then coming out of that, I think weak people are called to be honest and transparent with their weaknesses. Earlier in 2 Corinthians chapter one, Paul alludes to this. He says, he's just writing very transparently. He says, we were despairing of life itself. We were so down, so depressed, so frustrated that we thought this was it. And you see that kind of transparency. You see it in his writing to the Galatian churches there in the book of Galatians of his just transparency and frustration and consternation with those churches and their willingness to seemingly abandon the gospel. But then you can also go right to the Psalms and you find that the psalmists are incredibly transparent and open about their feelings, their emotions, their struggles, their fears, their concerns, their anxieties. One of my favorite psalms is Psalm 73. Asaph there talks about just, he's looking around, and he's like, the wicked prosper, they flourish. And he says, all in vain have I kept my hands clean. All in vain have I been obedient and followed the Lord and tried to do what was right. Because it seems like in my obedience and trying to pursue the Lord, I'm just beaten and stricken down, and I'm suffering time after time after time again. The good news is Asaph comes to his senses. He realizes that God still is sovereign and in control and working and moving, and he's grateful for the patient kindness of the Lord. But we see there in the Psalms just a beautiful transparency 
students, faculty, staff, it's important for you. I'm not saying you gotta bear it all in front of everybody. There's wisdom in that. But if we masquerade around like everything is always good and perfect, we are, we are doing a major disservice to those that follow us. It's important for us to be transparent, to be honest, be authentic with our weaknesses around other people. And then the other thing is weak people get help. That's number six. Weak people recognize their weaknesses. They're open and honest with them around other people, but then they don't just sit in those weaknesses. They go for help. They find mentors. They find counselors. They find people that will come alongside them. All throughout the Proverbs, you have that idea, that theme over and over and over again of the importance of a good friend, of somebody to come alongside to impart wisdom, to help guide you in the journey. All of us have, as followers of Jesus, the comforter, the Holy Spirit, but sometimes the Holy Spirit uses the the physical presence of other people in our lives to help refine us and encourage us and strengthen us. So it's important for you to recognize your weaknesses. And then if you find yourself struggling, Christians get down. Psalm 42, why are you downcast, O my soul? Christians get discouraged. Christians are anxious. Christians are worried. Christians get depressed. So do something with that. Don't try to shoulder it alone. Strong people try to do that. Weak people realize they need some help. And I'd encourage you to find that, to get that. A few more. I think also weak people listen. This comes right out of James chapter one. What does James say? Be quick to hear, be quick to listen, be slow to speak. There's an author by the name of Liz Wiseman. She wrote a book called Multipliers in which she was studying uh, several different top kind of effective successful in the world's eyes, CEOs, presidents, major leaders in society. And here's what she found that was pretty unique is that they didn't talk a lot. That when they would go into a staff meeting or a room or a board meeting or a trustees meeting, they were often the last to speak. And they would only speak anywhere between 10 and 20% of the time because they realized the moment they speak, it guides the conversation, it guides the direction of the, the discussion. And they also realize that maybe they have something to learn. You see, weak people realize they don't have to talk all the time because they're also likely surrounded by other people that have a brain and have the Holy Spirit inside them. And there's the ability to listen to them and learn from them and grow from that input and wisdom as well. Last few, weak people, and this I won't spend long on this because Paul's already done it, they boast in the Lord. Weak people, just like Paul here, their goal is not to magnify their name or their reputation or to grow their kingdom. It's to highlight and to magnify Jesus Christ. And so in all of their boasting, Psalm 115 is a great verse on this passage. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be all the glory because of your love and your faithfulness. Weak people want to give the credit back to God for anything in their life. These last two are hard, but we'll end with that. I think weak people also embrace suffering because that's what Paul gives us here. Going back up to those few verses, he says, then for the sake of Christ, I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. He gives the, runs the gamut on any kind of bad thing you can happen, have happened to you. He says, I'm cool with that. 
they understand that those weaknesses that are, God is allowing into their life are for their good. This is something I've had to say over and over again to myself, to our congregation, that no matter what the calamity, no matter what the hardship, no matter what the trial, that God is sovereign and that he is able to work that for your good and to hold on to that. And weak people realize that even their weakness God can be glorified and magnified. And then finally, I would say that weak people worship. And I was mentioning this to our congregation just a few days ago, or a few Sundays ago. Uh, There's so many great songs that are out there, but I, I gravitate to the worship songs that aren't the happy, clappy kind. Because happy, clappy worship is really easy to sing. It's easy to write. But I like the type of worship that says, no, I'm gonna, I'm gonna praise you when it's hard. I'm gonna praise you in the suffering. I'm gonna praise you when there is a no or a wait. I'm going to embrace you and to trust you and to worship you and to acknowledge that God, you are still sovereign. You still love me. You still have a plan. You are still working all of this for my good, no matter what the circumstances. So if it's adversity, you're still worshiping. If your church is declining, you're still worshiping. If your giving is down, you're still worshiping. If your institution is experiencing a massive shift in leadership right before your eyes that was very unexpected, God is still worthy of your worship. He's still worthy of your life and your obedience and your heart. And so my encouragement is to continue to keep worshiping to continue to keep trusting that God loves you, he's good, and he's working it for your good.